0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rise for Racial Justice, the podcast. I'm Bernetta Parson, and on this show, we bring you the finest thought leaders in the anti-racist and education realms with the goal of sharing resources for liberation, transformation, consciousness-raising, and anti-racist action. Today we have two renowned guests, Dr. Monisha Bajaj is a professor of international and multicultural education at the University of San Francisco. She is the editor and author of eight books and numerous articles on issues of peace, human rights, migration, racial justice, and education. Dr. Bajaj is also the 2015 recipient of the Ella Baker Septima-Clark Human Rights Award for the American Education Research Association. Dr. Maria Hansopoulos is an associate professor of education at Vassar College and a participating faculty member in the International Studies, Urban Studies and Women's Studies programs. She is a former New York City public school teacher whose research has examined school culture and climate, peace and human rights education, migration and social studies curricula. She is an author and co-editor of three books, Together, they have written Educating for Peace and Human Rights, An Introduction, which was published last year by Bloomsbury. So thank you (laughs) so much uh, for taking time to talk to the RISE audience today. Before we get started, I wanted to ask you both to talk a little bit about your relationship and how that led to writing this book together. Monisha, do you want to start?
1: Sure, I'm happy to. So Maria and I, we met, I think in 2004, if I'm not mistaken. And I was finishing up my doctorate in international educational development with a concentration in peace education at Teachers College, Columbia University. I was, I'd just come back from collecting data. Um, I had done research internationally in Sub-Saharan Africa and Maria was at the beginning stages of her doctorate in the same program. And, um, I was speaking to a doctoral seminar that Maria was participating in and we sort Sort of already had heard about each other because I was a colleague of her sisters, and so when I saw her and met, it felt like I already knew her, and she was just a few years behind in the same program, and so we already had um, similar interests and similar kind of commitments at that early point. And then as we moved on, um, as you know, we both were doing research and at different stages of our, of our faculty and sort of activist community-based education and research life, um, we found even more intersections over the past two decades, which has led us to collaborate and, and write different things in different constellations and do different applied projects related to curriculum development over the years um, that have been really fruitful collaborations.
2: I think Monisha summed it up really well. I mean, we met at that time, but then both when Monish was at Teachers College, then at USF, and then I started at Vassar, we found ways to continue to collaborate together. And she named one, one was a larger curriculum project that um, we launched a website about kind of thinking critically about teaching about the Middle East and North Africa for social studies teachers and kind of review textbooks and worked on that together with some other colleagues, as well as we co-edited, you know, Peace Education International Perspectives. But in general, we paneled together, we presented together, we think together, So it's just been a very generative relationship over the last, my goodness, 20 years, right? So, um, and we're good friends. And so that, that really kind of is fueled, I think, both by our um, intellectual engagements as well as just our personal relationships too.
0: All right. So let's start with Monisha. What led you into peace education and human rights education?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I w- I would say what I was always pretty interested in education. I was thinking um, about sort of when was like my first kind of professional role as an educator. And I think about kind of middle school. I was on the student council and um, I went to a, a progressive educational school for a couple of years in middle school. And um, the student council, they gave us a lot of authority to plan entire events. Um, it was around the time that Martin Luther King Day Um, first got recognized in California and they, the teachers told the student council that you could either have the day off or you could plan an entire series of events for the middle school. And we decided to go to a march with civil rights leaders in San Francisco and take students. And then when I was in high school, I started in the summers working at a a preschool program. So I would teach the kids in the summer. And then so always had an interest in education and, and through college and after college kind of volunteering or working in educational settings but I really was also passionate about human rights. And my first job out of college was working for a large international human rights organization, um, as kind of an entry level. I think my position was administrative associate. So doing different things in the office. And this was based in DC, um, and sort of learning about this very legal and advocacy related field of international human rights, but also having this commitment and interest, um, in education. And I remember I was, um, A friend and I would take walks after work and we started reading books and talking about them on our walks. And we had just read Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I was working all day in the field of human rights. And so just got really interested in what what is this nexus? And through conversations with different people, I realized that one of the kind of founding parents of the field of uh, human rights education lived uh, a couple miles away in Washington, D.C. And so somebody made an introduction and I got to spend a lot of time with um, this kind of retired professor who had been one of the key fundamental um, people who had been advocating. And he was one of the editors of the first book on human rights education that came out in 1996, which, you know, for many years, many of us referred to as the Bible of human rights education. So that was how I got interested in the field is putting these two, um, areas together. And then after that kind of trying out different research projects in this emerging field that hadn't really been established yet. And there wasn't really jobs in the field, or, um, at least in the U S very little uptake, um, given the less kind of, interest in international, human, well, interest in the human rights framework if, if, if it wasn't being applied over there. Um, so I got interested. I did a research project in the Dominican Republic for a year connecting with human rights organizations and translating some of their materials into curriculum that we piloted in an eighth grade class and then saw a doctoral program as a way to really go deeper into a field that didn't really you know hadn't really been established yet so to develop research and then that led me on the path to um academia and doing more research and writing um in different parts of the globe in south asia and sub-saharan africa in addition to the caribbean and now in the u.s with refugees
0: um it it struck me that you talked about doing this project um, for martin luther king day as a young person as a child do you remember like what that day was like
1: I remember it. It was a very formative experience to be, I think I was 12 when we did this. And we were, you know, arm in arm linked up with these civil rights leaders in San Francisco and marching through the streets. And, you know, it, it's a very, um, you know, now living in the Bay Area, it's an annual thing that's been going on for quite some time. And even before it became a holiday, but we, we had just become sort of you know, at least a state holiday, and there was still advocacy around the federal. And yeah, I mean, it was formative to really think about what do these ideals mean? And what does it look like when you take them to the streets and, you know, try to push for the implementation of human rights in all communities everywhere for all people, not just on a piece of paper that the UN has written down.
0: Yeah. And Maria, what brought you to peace education and human rights education?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I could go back to like, my childhood in some ways too. Um, although I did not go to progressive schools at all. I went to, you know, um, public schools my entire life, some of which were underfunded or mixed funded. I don't know how else to say it. Right. But it's, it's kind of, it was not necessarily my elementary school was great. It was so community oriented, but I wouldn't say it had like a progressive approach at all. Um, but I'm thinking as a young person, I was certainly involved in sort of education more broadly, I was, when I was a high school student, I was the representative for like our city on the state, there was a youth council for the whole state, I was on it, but I don't think my commitment solidified until much later, to be honest, I was sort of just going through the motions of school as a a young person, for better or for worse, I had some opportunities, didn't have others, but you know, just just trying to go through, I'm, I'm first generation to even graduate high school in my family, so you know, it just, it was like kind of a mixed bag. College, I was in a completely different route. I didn't even think I'd end up in education. But what happened is after college, throughout college, similar to Monisha, I did youth work, I did different things, but I just didn't think I would end up in this field. And it wasn't until after I was working for a youth development organization, where just seeing the possibilities of kind of the education that Monisha is talking about when you empower youth to make change in their communities where they can go like that coming from the actual education, not from outside of formal education, not outside of it. And even though this was an after-school program, there was just so much passion coming from the youth when given the opportunity. But, you know, I I started to notice that some of these young people who were community activists, leaders, um, were not doing well in school. And, you know, sort of got me interested in thinking about why aren't schools these spaces to, um, to provide young people with the tools to be, you know, their best selves, but also... To you know, to to work with their communities, to to work towards transformative change, but also where they could thrive and grow and be nurtured. So that kind of led me into teaching, believe it or not. And I didn't really think I'd end up there, um, but I did. Long story short, I started becoming very interested in in the progressive public school movement in New York City, the small schools movement, critical small schools. I ended up working and founding some schools that really are, that are centering both youth voice, youth voice racial justice progressive education all of that stuff in you know public school settings despite the the mandates of standards and testing and all of those things so I was very lucky that when I ended up kind of getting into teaching I sort of found a niche in New York City with a group of kind of cult, uh, radical educators and progressive educators that were really trying to push for different ways of, of schooling. And so I was a social studies teacher at a wonderful school for a long time. And I think one of the things that led me to peace and human rights education specifically, it, it's always been integrated in my work, clearly. I always think you got to connect the local with the global, with the national, and just that's how you build solidarity. And in one year, I took my students to Cuba, actually. And somehow we did this <laughs> in a DOE school. <laughs> Don't think it would happen today. <laughs> this was in 2001, pre-September 11th as well. And that transformed their lives in many ways because, you know, people are fed a particular narrative and they just got a more critical perspective about even what they were being fed in the United States, but also just that things are more nuanced. But I think what was most beautiful is that it really did transform their lives, right? This group of young people that went with us it trans- transformed our lives as teachers. And so what happened was I sort of stumbled across this field of peace and human rights education almost backwards, right? So post 9-11, I saw some literature, Columbia had a program, and I'm like, this is the work I'm doing in my classroom anyway. And post 9-11, I'm, I'm bringing that up, is because I've written a little bit about that as well. Our school sort of approached it differently than other schools. I mean, we we certainly looked at the impact. We were in Manhattan, you know, I was there mm-hmm. teaching when that happened, But we also with our students really collectively looked at like, you know, what are the implications of this for everyone? And, you know, we had talks throughout the year about war, militarism, all these things that were sort of put forth at that time, racism, anti-Arab and anti-Islamophobia, all the things that were coming up, looking at it more critically, kind of going against the dominant grain and just seeing the need for this to happen. And so I ended up, I was taking a class actually, and I saw this program. I just was like, this is the work that we're doing. And I got into it that way. So I really came, I, I I guess I'm trying to say that peace and human rights education just is so fundamental, in my opinion, to education period, right? Mm. So I almost came in that way. I hope that yeah, wasn't I too know. convoluted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think uh, for both of you, and actually for anybody, like, you know, there are so many different things that lead up to how how you end up where you end up. Um, so it's nice to hear the the breadth of it. Um, all right. So, and now I will ask you, then, there is a distinction between human rights education and peace education. Um, but there are also intersections between them. So I'm going to ask both of you to, to talk about that and whoever like to start that that's great. Um, but I, I think that, um, it would be really nice for the audience to get the nuances. Maria, you want to start?
2: Sure. I'll take the okay. peace education piece. And Monisha, you can take human rights, and then we'll talk about their intersections. Peace education broadly, on some level it's normative, but some, on another level it's also localized, right? How people, What peace means to different groups of people really matters, and that's what we center. But just if I were to describe it generally, peace education would be a wide-ranging field of practice and scholarship. And it's just really viewed as a vehicle to dismantle violence in its various forms. And so this includes direct violence, cultural violence, and structural violence. And then the idea is to, by dismantling all these forms of violence, not just direct violence, but these other structural and cultural, cultural violences as well, you're building a more just and sustainable peace. It's also a means to teach about peace and for peace. So it considers and requires, you know, attention to, you know, what is the content that we're that we're using or the various contents um, and transforming that. Um, what are the pedagogy, structures, practices, relationships between educators and learners, um, and also the systems by which we measure what education is, all of these things matter when we're kind of building a program for peace education. And because it's it's wide-ranging, it has various origins in different parts of the globe. It is definitely rife with plural, multiple interpretations and enactments, but that's also the beauty of it. And, you know, I think in our work, Monish and I, we do try to center the different enactments of peace education around the globe, honoring their uniqueness, as well as the universal aspects about dismantling various forms of violence and building conditions for just
1: and sustainable peace. Thanks, Maria. Um, I will say, you know, the concept of human rights has, I think it's been a little bit sort of neutralized, but when we think about sort of the history of this term human rights, it has pretty radical origins. I mean, imagine the idea that everybody has the same equal and undeniable rights that goes against, you know, structures of racism. It goes stru- against structures of colonialism, sexism, heteropatriarchy. I mean, it goes against every type of larger institutional structural system of discrimination to say that Everyone actually is entitled to equal rights. Everyone has dignity. Everyone deserves the same rights to develop their themselves and their personality and the right to life and, you know, secure, like the right to live, you know, their lives as they see fit, express themselves, et cetera. So, you know, when I think about human rights, I think of its more radical history. I think of the Haitian Revolution, which was a demand for equal rights. I think about Frederick Douglass's speech in 1854, where he talked about human rights and the human family across borders and, I think it often gets reduced to World War II and that that was kind of the birth of human rights. But we see uh, larger movements millennia before for dignity, for rights, for a larger encompassing kind of framework for the human family with more kind of grounding and equality. So human rights education comes out of that struggle for equal rights, human rights that all humans um, are One and share a common humanity and deserve the same rights. Human rights education was enshrined in this kind of milestone document that came out of uh, the establishment of the UN, which the charter was signed in 1945. There was desire for a declaration of human rights that would be sort of a cornerstone document of the United Nations. But it took a a few years for people to hash out the language of that, what rights would be included, what concepts would be included. So after a lot of discussion over every phrase, every article, every comment, etc. the universal declaration of human rights was adopted in 1948 by the members of the un at that time and when we think about our history there were many colonial nations at that time fighting for independence so the un i think was about less than 50 nation states at that time but it became a foundational document of the united nations this universal declaration of human rights and if we think about that document in its historical context it's very ahead of its time i mean there are you know fundamental rights to paid time off fundamental rights to freedom of expression fundamental rights to not just education this is article 26 but education that is directed towards Human rights. And this came from many people involved in those debates who had just witnessed um, genocide, the Holocaust, and had seen that in Germany people were educated, but it didn't stop them from carrying out mass atrocities against Jewish people, against Roma, against queer people, against the different people who were targeted in the Holocaust. And so they said it can't just be education because these people, were educated, you know. There were doctors who were carrying out experiments on on human bodies and in the most horrific ways. So it can't just be education; it has to be education that is oriented towards peace and human rights. So from the 1940s forward, as we know, with massive decolonization, the focus was on access to education, given that colonial powers had really restricted. Access to education. So there was a push more towards access and equitable access to education um, in the years following the 1940s and human rights education. It kind of came a bit more into the fore, starting, I would say, in the 80s and the 90s, where people said, you know, it can't just be access to any type of education, it has to be access to education that does teach people about sort of the common good about human rights. And it, you know, it has been varied. I'm thinking about the, I, I think I mentioned this um, to both of you before, that the families of Michael Brown, the families of George Floyd have, have gone to UN. Um, mechanisms to testify about police brutality in the US as a form of torture. And that violates the US's signature on the Convention Against Torture at the United Nations and bringing issues of racial discrimination to an international audience through the framework of human rights. And definitely, Maria and I argue for a more critical, decolonial, transformative form of human rights education that's really rooted in um, dignity, agency, solidarity, relationality across struggles as well.
0: Well, I, w- I was going to ask it. So Manisha, you were talking about Michael Brown, um, in particular, in and, you know, in in your book, you write about the truth telling project. And I was going to ask, I guess the question would be, how do you, um, how does that intersect with peace, education and human rights education?
1: Maria, I'll let you take that one. Sure.
2: I mean, I think we use that as an example. In the book, we kind of tie to critical peace education there because we're, we're tying to the tradition of kind of reparations and restorative practices and, and healing and truth telling. Which there's there's a lot of over, overlap. I just want to be clear, and that and you know we do see the distinctions between the two fields, but we 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 bridge them as Monisha just said through focusing on dignity and transformative agency. And so that example was very important for us to kind of include in the book because of exactly what Monisha was saying, while there is a history of using a human rights framework or what we're saying also a critical peace education framework in the U S to fight for racial justice, those connections are not always made obvious sometimes, right? The U S is seen as an exception to some of these, to human rights violations, particularly in dominant discourses. So we felt that that was really important to show how communities um even outside of sort of a uh A, you know, that this is grassroots movements, it's not like schooling. So when we talk about education, we're talking about community education, grassroots approaches, kind of a more decolonial approach or post-colonial approach, where communities themselves in in the US and this in this particular context, uh black communities deciding for themselves how they want to approach. Healing in this case, because that group, the Truth Telling Project, was, you know, founded by a group of folks in Missouri who were thinking through these issues about how to respond and how to how to acknowledge, tell the truth, and also heal, right? But but it has like larger repercussions. David Raglan, who we talk about, who writes about it, who is who is very active, is grounding it in some of the critical and decolonial peace education work about Centering localized experiences, localized knowledges, and local, localized ways of, of imagining a future—really—in this kind of work. So that's how it does connect to peace ed. I mean, peace ed is about all of those things. It, it, there's a future aspect to peace ed as well, right? So, how do we build a just and sustainable peace? So, I think that's a very great example of both looking how to dismantle all the systems that contributed to the direct cultural and structural violence that is embodied in in police brutality and imagine new ways of being free from that as well. So I'm not sure if that's fully answering your question, but it was centering both localized experiences, agency, and also just a vision for justice, liberation, and yeah, a vision for justice, liberation, and peace (laughs) defined by
0: the community. And so let's take a little break here. If you're interested in learning more about racial literacy, please check out the Rise for Racial Justice website at riseforracialjustice.org. Rise for Racial Justice is committed to preparing, supporting and empowering young people, families, teachers and schools to rise for racial justice. If you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. We are back with Dr. Monisha Bajaj and Dr. Maria Hansopoulos, authors of the book Educating for Peace and Human Rights, an Introduction. So we started actually talking about, happened to go back to your own childhood, but you both have worked with a large range of students from High school, undergraduate, graduate—how do students understand human rights education and peace education? Um, Monisha, would you like to start at the graduate level?
1: Sure. I mean, I will just say I've—I've I've taught. You know, I've worked with high school students. I've worked with middle school students. I've worked with—I haven't worked too much with undergrads, but a little bit. But now I teach graduate students mostly. But I think at all levels there is this innate sense, and it develops over time, of justice, of what's right, what's wrong. If we think about, you know, even elementary age school kids, they know right from wrong, and they know when they've been wronged, and they will let you know when they have been wronged. And so I think this fundamental sense of justice and fairness is something that, young people have. And I think working at the graduate school level, it's been, you know, really exposing students to to what we were, you know, talking about briefly a bit before. How do we analyze structures of inequality, structures of institutional discrimination, forces of um, violations of human rights or injustice, and then really think about what interventions, what forms of education might raise people's critical consciousness about intervening, um, what pedagogies might get us to a more critical understanding of those issues and imagining where interventions might work and be strategic and coalitional um, in groups, collective strategies for action. So thinking about how that happens through the education process, Again, whether inside or outside of formal schools. And so that's been my work with graduate students is really kind of focusing on on both of those things at the same time. How do we analyze? What are the tools that I can give students to analyze larger issues and then understand and be inspired by other movements for change and really think about where they fit in, whether it's joining other movements for change, whether it's in their own classrooms, and their own organizations, or creating something new and um, developing it out.
0: And Maria, you have worked with high school students, so what do you think they are seeing through uh, peace and human rights education?
2: I mean, in my experience, and I'm actually working with high school students even right now, one of my classes, we're actually working in the high school directly during the day in the econ economics class. We're, we're doing a unit on migration, human rights, and the economy, actually, but if you start I've noticed with high school students and with undergrads, and it's different, but if you start with their understandings of what, you know, peace is or what violence is, right? Or um, or human rights or you know, what rights they've been denied, I think starting from that perspective, it's it's gonna take shape differently in whatever context you're working in. My students are noticing this now, right? They're like faster students and they're working in the high school and they're saying, wow, they're just bringing such a different lens to this. But when you start with their lens and their understandings of what these things are, you can then build in the way that Monisha was just describing to see linkages between their struggles and their possibilities in relationship to other people's struggles and their possibilities. But I find just giving students the space to make meaning and talk about this and not just say, you know, here's a unit on human rights. These are the universal declaration of human rights. And this is where, you know, and this is what's happening here, you know, in this disconnected way, it's going to remain disconnected. But if we start by really digging in and looking and thinking about how this impacts our own lives, right, from the beginning, they bring their own meanings to it. So right now, sorry, just to go back to the class that we're teaching on um, human rights, migration and the economy we did start with them. And now we're teaching about, you know, migration across the world actually. And I feel like they're just, they're plugged in. They're seeing the connections. They're seeing what's happening in with migrants and say the Mediterranean, right. Trying to, trying to leave areas and cross over into Europe. It's no different than, you know, migrants coming to Poughkeepsie. It is different. It is distinct. And yet it's not different and distinct. So I think um, just building that capacity to, look at one's own context, critically analyze allows people to make the linkages. And I find that same in high school students, same with undergrads, same with middle school students, right? So it's it's, it's, sometimes you have to approach it a little bit differently, but not really
1: for a couple of years, I had a um, had a team of graduate students who were master's and doctoral students um, focusing on human rights education. We have a human rights education concentration in our doctoral program over at USF and in international and multicultural education. And then we have a standalone master's in human rights education, which is the only master's in human rights education in the whole world. And so a group of students and I um, were partnering with a, a local high school here in Oakland, California, that is a, it's a public non-charter high school for immigrant, recently arrived immigrant and refugee students. So we were running a weekly club for these students on human rights as part of this research project. It was sort of like a collaborative action research project where we would run the club and then also do sort of qualitative research within the school. And there was a really powerful incident with one of the members of our human rights club. He was a, um, a young refugee from Burma. Uh, Myanmar. And um, we took a field trip one day with the club to a local um, university, had a human rights exhibit. And we were looking at images from, you know, these award-winning photographers from all over the world. And this student was really, you know, for a long time standing in front of this image of a child soldier from Uganda. And when we came back um, to kind of debrief the images we saw, he was really struck by it. And he started talking about how he had been conscripted into the Myanmar military and forced to work in these mines at age 11, they, you know, would have young children work in the mines because they could go in easier to extract precious metals or whatever. And how he, his, we ended up using this comment of his in, in one of the articles that I'm happy to share with anyone interested that he said, that's like my story. And he had never quite seen outside of his own context or been able to put in a framework that this happens to other people across the globe. And he really connected with this because he was like, this happens to other people too. And, you know, I think he had a sense of, oh, this isn't just me and my family. This is like a worldwide phenomenon. That's what I think is really powerful about working with students at all different levels, whether it's the graduate students or undergrads or middle school or high school, is making these connections across contexts and fostering a sense of empathy, solidarity, relationality across borders and really helping people think in that kind of globally minded and critically minded way.
2: Manisha, you got me thinking it was just something that happened last week when I was in the class, which was almost the opposite of what you're saying. Not the opposite, but it wasn't about linking to international, but it was about taking this document and seeing how what was happening to them locally was a human rights violation. And it, it's seemingly mundane. You just shared this very, very powerful story um, of, of a young person who was, you know, conscripted. But at this time, you know, just dealing with sort of the structural violence that I think pervades, you know, the school where we're doing this project, where there's been a lot of Missed school this year because of understaffing, um, gun violence, um, and other things. Like they're just like canceling school. They decided to add for the break a few more days to make up for it. And of course, the kids weren't informed. And this is their break, right? Like you know, this was just a couple weeks ago, and we just happened to be talking about the Human Rights Declaration. And you know, we started looking at it. We're like, well, this isn't fair. They didn't get our input. We need this break. It's been a very stressful year. It's not our fault school keeps getting canceled. And um, they started to look at like Article 24, (laughs) you know, the right to rest and leisure and what that means and how this is really important. Some students were going to go to the school board meeting to talk about it and use that as a framing of why this was an unfair top-down practice being kind of put on them. People were pretty upset, including the teachers, that this was being taken away from them, like last minute, right? Their break and, or much of their break. So it was interesting to see how even this document became a discussion point of like our human rights are being violated and they were in this very, very hyper-local context. So just wanted to add that tidbit because it's, it's almost the, you know, it's not this broader sort of global lens, but actually that's the beauty of it. You can start thinking kind of critically just about things in your own context that maybe you wouldn't, you know, gave them a little bit of like, Hey, this is this document, you know, you're violating this document right now. Anyway, just wanted to throw that in there. Um,
0: but that's again you know just the idea that you have young people who are hopefully you know they're learning how to be citizens of the world and right. they are learning you know what what their rights are so that's just an an incredible testament to the work that you're both doing thank you um <laughs> all right so before we go, we like to ask our guests to share what is lighting them up and or what is soothing their soul. And I'll start with you, Maria. So what are you reading that's lighting you up or soothing your soul?
2: Gosh, I'm not sure if what I'm reading is soothing my soul. I just started reading this uh, new book that I, I actually got for Christmas called Against the Loveless World. It is pretty heavy. So I don't know if soothing the soul is the right way, but <laughs> I do like to take heavy things on um, and its... Um, it's about someone who's in a solitary confinement cell in Israel, a Palestinian uh, woman. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fiction. It's by um, Susan Apokala. Um So I just started that. So it's heavy, I, you know, but it's good so far. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> but um, I think what's, I you're going to laugh at me. What soothes my soul right now is just sort of some, I'm trying to include <laughs> some daily practices in my life because it has just been such a hectic, few years with the pandemic and some other things that are happening. <sighs> don't laugh, but what calms me is playing, not Wordle, don't worry, but wordscapes. I've been addicted to wordscapes <laughs> and I just spend a half hour in the morning in bed, kind of centering myself. Okay. Monisha's laughing. Um, yes. <laughs> playing wordscapes, it suits my soul. I, I don't care. It suits my soul. It just gives me this like complete focus and, um, in a way it allows me to start my day. So that's what I do on the days I have to commute early. I just do it on the train. Um, but yes, reading, I tend to go for the heavy, um, and that's fine. And, uh, but you know, of course music sues my soul too. So <laughs> just playing all these different playlists and being exposed to my, my kids music, you know, my daughter is like, uh, introducing me to all sorts of, uh, new music that I would never be acquainted with. Cause she's 13. <laughs> so that, that's, that's what music is that? Oh my gosh, she's really into Conan in Gray, <laughs> who I'd never heard of. <laughs> Very emo. Great. Um,
0: and Manisha, what are you reading or watching, listening to? That's yeah lighting you up or giving yourself? (laughs) Well,
1: I will say there's a project that because of COVID has gotten really delayed and I'm reading and rereading drafts because it's due to the publisher ASAP and I'll put a little plug in. it's coming out in December. It's a book that is um, co-written by about with myself and about 20 other educators, scholars, um, youth, and it's called Humanizing Education for Immigrant and Refugee Youth, 20 Strategies for the Classroom and Beyond. Teachers College Press is publishing it and it's lighting me up because I can see that it's the result of probably about a decade of work at this point and for some people in the book who've been working on this for much longer and it really um, you know reading and rereading and correcting and revising and getting it ready to to go to print is um, just getting me excited about all the love and heart and um, you know just quest for more contextually relevant education for immigrant and refugee students um, that is in this book and then soothing my soul while I live um, not too far like maybe a mile or so from the water so walking down by the water really suits my soul just to be near the water and walk and take in the surroundings and you know not be at my computer um, when I really need to reset that's been really helpful and um, the weather is shifting so it's just been really nice to be outside and take walks and notice what's what's changing on the leaves and the colors and, and what birds are chirping and just being in nature has been really helpful. That
0: is great. Um, So thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. Our guests were uh, Dr. Monisha Bajaj and Dr. Maria Hansopoulos. If you haven't read their book, Educating for Peace and Human Rights, please do. Uh, It has a comprehensive history of peace and human rights education, as well as a number of examples of practices and programming that is transformative. I would say now, Monisha, I know that you have an article that is recently out for decolonizing curriculum. Do you want to say a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, that's a separate research project that I, um, have been doing looking at an elementary school that is, um, really decolonizing sort of curriculum at the early elementary grades level. And that article is in the London Review of Education on a, and it's an open access special issue on decolonizing curriculum. And so that looks at how, how do we decolonize curriculum with young children and center Indigenous, Black, other stories of communities of color, ancient civilizations, that can allow for critical thinking before um, students even get to the grades where, you know, we talk about sometimes on learning things that they've learned, these students are learning things in an alternative and sort of more decolonial way from the get. So that article talks about some of that work.
0: Okay. And Maria, what can we look forward to from you?
2: Um, well, I'm honestly, if I'm just being really truthful, I'm coming off um, a very tough couple of years, having lost both my parents in the last few years. And so no, that's OK. Right. I didn't mean to take it there. But I am looking forward to actually I am working on a project, I should say. Um, I just finished wrapping up a, um, a larger scale project on project based assessment, but that's been kind of over um, and I'm doing a project in I'm looking to revitalize, I should say, because the pandemic took a turn, a project that I'm doing in Athens with um, teachers of refugee students there and just kind of looking at their experience and the experience of their young of the young people. Um, but honestly, I'm just looking forward I'm not good at promoting my work in the same way that others are to be honest. So I'm just looking forward. I'm just very excited to be teaching in public school again and working in high school and figuring out with my students where we want to go from there. Um, so I do have these research projects, but I'm, I'm just looking forward to kind of figuring out this summer, the directions that I want to go in. So no new books for me. And I don't think there will be for some time. I actually just kind of want to take a break and, just really focus on doing the work because that's what I love doing. And when you talk about what lights us up, that's actually what lights me up, working with young people and teaching. I am a teacher through and through. And so I'm just looking forward to kind of focusing on my teaching again and working with folks in that way. So that's where I am.
0: And that's great. That's great. Thank you again to Monisha and Maria. Um, And I invite you back when we continue the conversation about anti-racism, and Education on Rise for Racial Justice, the podcast.